The following sermon was delivered by Pastor Ryan Rippey in the Sunday morning service at Calvary Community Church in Brentwood, California. You'll find more information at calvarytruth.org. Well, good morning. Let's turn over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. I want to read verses 8 to 20. This is what we're going to be looking at today. Let me go ahead and start in verse 1 because we just need to get the context. Verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he's the owner of everything. But he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I first that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They made much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you. What Paul is driving at in all of Galatians is this reality that beholding the glory of Christ... When you behold the glory of Christ, it is the means of becoming like Christ in his glory. When you behold the glory of Christ, it is the means of becoming like Christ in his glory. And he's driving at this reality that it's, it's a fight, but it's a fight for something specific. It's a fight for joy in Christ. And so he, this is a pastor's heart. A pastor who wants to be like Christ, who is faithful to his calling, to his great shepherd, the Lord Jesus. This is his heart when he says, I am in anguish, verse 19, of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He says in verse 15, what happened to your blessedness? That word blessedness, makarios, well here it's the... The, the adjectival form, but it's this idea that it's what Jesus used in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed are the peacemakers, blessed are the poor in spirit. What he means is happy, full of joy. And he says to the Galatians, what happened to your joy? What happened to your happiness, your blessedness? And there, there are many things in life that can take away our joy. Sometimes it's the circumstances of life, the, the, the fact of living in this fallen world and, and our hearts breaking over the, the terrible tragedies of life that can tempt to rob us of our joy. And when that happens, Scripture says, we're not to rebuke those kind of people, we're to come alongside them and help them. Paul told the Thessalonians this. He said, when someone is small-souled, that they're, they're, they're faint-hearted. They, they, the trials of life are like mountains that are so high that they can't see over them and they feel like they're going to be crushed by them. We're to come alongside and encourage them. 
The word there is parakaleo. It was used of people coming alongside underneath an arm to help somebody walk because they're so faint-hearted. They just, they crumble under the pressure of what's before them. You've been there? Maybe you're there right now. Our ministry as brothers and sisters is to come alongside and encourage you. To not grow faint-hearted, to not grow weary in well-doing, to not lose hope in Christ that the Father is on his throne and everything that's passed through your life has come through his hands. And though we don't see, it's, it's a veil of tears and we don't understand why God allows things to happen. We trust his character. We trust who he is, that he's holy and perfect. And he's allowed this for, for his greater purposes, for his glory, and ultimately for our joy. And this is not just simple, easy sort of pat answers. This is the only thing we can base our trust and hope in. This is the only thing that won't rob us of joy, is that there's a God in heaven who's in control, and he allowed this. And so I'm going through this because he purposed this to bring me a greater joy in the end through this. And though I can't see it now, though I may not see it for a while, I trust he's going to make it known to me. Then there's a, the sin in our life that robs our joy. When we give in to idolatry, we give in to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life and we go down that, that rabbit hole of sin and it's just like a downward spiral and we lose our joy and everything is like ashes in our mouth. And the answer to reclaiming our joy is to repent, to turn from our sin, to cast it aside, to turn to Christ and find our satisfaction and fullness in him. In Christ alone, my hope is found, we sang. Well, those aren't the situations Paul's talking about. Here he's talking about when you came to Christ, you came out of religions that were pagan, that brought you no joy and satisfaction, and now you're trying to turn your Christianity into a religion just like the ones you came from. And you're finding in this religion of duty, this religion of keeping the law, there is no joy. You're back under slavery. And sometimes we do this to ourselves with the best of intentions. We, we become Christians and then we live the Christian life for a while and then we begin to think that in the Christian life we need to start adding certain things that are going to make us holy and, and certain things that are going to make God happy with us. But we begin to have this This standard that goes beyond what the gospel says. And we begin to think that's what makes us acceptable with God. And then we begin to judge others because they don't meet that standard. And guess what happens? We don't have any joy anymore. We lose our happiness and our joy. And so this fight to be like Christ, this fight for the gospel is a fight for joy. And here in this passage, I know I've had a little bit of a longer introduction, but this is the heart of a shepherd. Verse 11, he says, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. I poured out my heart over you. I gave my life to you. I came to you. I shared the gospel. I saw what I thought was fruit, and I fear I may have labored in vain. And this isn't Paul being hopeless. This is, this is the heart of a, of a, of a pastor in fact, he takes on the, the role of like a father to them. And if you've been parents any length of time, sometimes you feel that way, don't you? I feel like I'm doing this parenting thing in vain. I poured all these years into it, and I don't know that I see what I want to see. He says in verse 12, brothers, I entreat you. I'm begging and pleading with you. Verse 12. Verse 19, my little children, I'm in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. And he uses these terms of affection, brethren, brothers, verse 12, my little children, verse 19. That might have been a little bit of a rebuke because it's the word technia in the Greek, which is like a little child. But it also could be a term of endearment. John in 1 John uses it this way. Now he was in his, probably in his 80s or 90s when he wrote that. So everybody was like a little child to him. You know how that is when people get older. But Paul here, he he's, has this affection in the heart of a shepherd. And what he, he's driving at is verse 19. I want Christ to be formed in you. And he's going back to what he said in Galatians 2.20. Turn back to 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when he goes and says, I want Christ to be formed in you, he's saying, guess what? I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. So now the life I live, I'm being formed into Christ. And you believe this gospel. That means Christ lives in you. And you no longer live. And so Christ is being formed in you. And so this is the heart of of what he's driving at. And so what he says in verses 8 to 11 is, basically, there is no turning back. There's no turning back. If you want Christ to be formed in you, there is no turning back. Back in chapter 4, verse 8, he says, Formerly, when you didn't know God, you were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. Those who were by nature not gods. You were enslaved. And so he's taking into account the the Galatian situation that he came into. And Galatia is in Asia Minor, um, modern-day Turkey. And in Asia Minor and modern-day Turkey, in the Greek city, the cities that had been Hellenized, that had been influenced by Greek culture, there were a number of mystery religions that had flourished that focused on knowledge, hidden knowledge, special knowledge that only the leader had. Also, in Asia Minor, there was the Roman imperial cult that worshipped the emperor as God. It started with Augustus, and when they died, they became gods, and uh, the, the Roman emperors became gods that people could worship to, and then the later Roman Caesars took advantage of that and said, hey, I'll be a living god, and you need to offer incense to me and honor these days and seasons and weeks and months and all of these calendar events that are the Roman imperial cult and worship the Caesar in his household. It was a good political strategy for the Caesar anyway. And it was known for its calendar of events. Also, there were the the classic Greek pagan deities. You know them, Zeus. In fact, there was a temple to Zeus just outside of the city of Lystra, where Paul went in his first missionary journey in Galatia. In Ephesus, there's the temple to Artemis and her consort, the Greek wine god Dionysius. All of those gods that were in the Iliad that you read or the Odyssey in high school. Or maybe you read the Cliff Notes version. You at least got the God's names. They were the ones that the people worshipped all over the place. And then there was a group of people that worshipped stars and celestial bodies and astrological lore. And this was the the situation all across Rome. But in Asia Minor, this is what they were worshipping. And we don't know exactly what kind of... Uh, religions that every single Galatian came out of, but this is the kind of stuff they came out of. And what's fascinating is in verse 9, Paul talks about knowledge, gnosis, and he talks about conversion to Christ in terms of knowledge, perhaps dealing with those who would come out of the mystery cults. In verse 10, he hears about days and seasons and weeks and months which deal with the Roman imperial cult as well as their transition into the Jewish Old Covenant. He talks about here in verse 8, those that are by nature not gods. And elsewhere he had talked about the Greek pagan gods as not being gods. In fact, there's a little bit of a discussion whether Paul thinks they're not gods, 1 Corinthians 8.4, there are no gods, or if they're demon-inspired gods pagan gods, Deuteronomy 32, 17. Either way, these religions that the Galatians came out of, they were religions that were bondage and slavery. That's what he tells them in verse 8. You were enslaved to all of those religions you worshipped, all of those gods you worshipped, you were enslaved. And you've come to realize they're not really gods at all. They're not the true and living God who sent his son, who was publicly portrayed before your eyes as crucified. This is the one I want to be formed in you as the Lord Jesus. And what he tells them, he says, 
in verse 9, you've come to know God, or rather be known by God. He drives at this reality that you've come to know the true and living God, or rather, He, by His sovereign grace, enabled you to know Him. You see, sovereign grace is a, is a wonderful biblical truth that the sovereign work of Christ, past, present, and future, rests in the purposes and plans of the Father. And in one sense, saving faith is the easiest thing in the world. It's as easy as being clay in a potter's hands. Paul gives us that illustration in Romans. But in another sense, it's the hardest thing in the world because human clay hates being shaped and formed by Christ. Why? Because when Christ does the work, he gets the glory. And so sovereign grace humbles us. Sovereign grace causes us to cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 115, not to us, not to us, but to your name, give glory. And it's not surprising then Judaizers would find a foothold in the Galatian church, foothold for their false teaching in the heart of the Galatians, because just like every kind of legalism, Every kind of egocentric fad that gains a foothold in the church, it's rooted in pride. Rather than oppose the pride that was in the Galatian believers, the Judaizers fueled this pride and they said, move on from faith to works. Do it by your own effort. Do it by your own works. Have something to take pride in. Sola bootstrappa. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps alone. It's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation this year. That was one of their solas, right? They offered the law as a means of enjoying their pride in a morally acceptable way. That's what what legalism does. That's what I talked about earlier. When you start to judge others for how they're not measuring up to your standard, which you think is God's standard, that allows you to enjoy your pride in a morally acceptable way. Well, I don't do those things that person does because that would be sin. It was very appealing to people who wanted to be religious and moral but didn't want to be clay in the hands of the potter. So Paul says in verse 9, it's not that you came to know God by your own human effort. It's not like somehow by your own works you came to know God. No, rather, you were known by God. Let's put the cart, let's put the horse back before the cart. The priority here belongs with God, who so loved the world he gave his son, who sent his son at the high point of the ages to be the Messiah, to be our substitute and our savior, who pours out his spirit and draws his sheep to himself because Jesus said, I know my sheep and they hear my voice and I have other sheep who are not of this fold and they will come and they will follow me also. Isn't that what happened? We heard the gospel preached. Those of you who are Christians, you heard the gospel preached. And you heard the voice of Christ in the gospel. And the Spirit drew you to him. And you believed on his name and you were saved. And so Paul, he says to them, there's no turning back from this. There's no turning back. They had changed from paganism to Christ. And it's fascinating in verse 9 that he talks about knowledge, gnosis. You've come to know God or rather be known by him. This is more than just being in the know, right? This is more than viral memes, being in the know. I have teenagers. I'm slightly out of the know with all the viral memes. This is not even to know in the sense of intellectual assent to Christian doctrines. The devil knows that. Having head knowledge, as it were. This refers to personal intimacy. In fact, turn over to Romans 8. I want you to see this. Romans 8, verse 29. Paul writes this. He's speaking of the Father. We know that from verse 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, here's what I want you to see. For those he foreknew, there's the knowledge. Those he foreknew, the Father foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's the same idea that Paul's getting at. 
Listen, the Father knew you. And this idea of foreknowledge, this is a, don't, don't be bothered by this. This is a wonderful word. It, it could be translated for love. John Murray in his commentary talks about this, that this is the idea of not just knowing facts about somebody. This is about intimately knowing somebody beforehand. I mean, think about your oldest friends, the ones that you've known from childhood that are dearest to you, that you have the most memories with, that you're the most intimate with. You could be separated by years, and when you get together, there is a bond and a closeness and an affection that just is unrivaled in other relationships. The Father foreknew us in Christ before the foundation of the world. And those he foreknew, he predestined He planned out the steps in advance for a purpose. What were those steps to be? He was going to conform you and I into the image of his son. This is good news. By the way, predestination is never used of unbelievers, the non-elect. God doesn't predestine and plan out the steps of those that go to hell. He lets them, Scripture says, go their own way and fill up the cup of wrath by their own actions. They're responsible And so we have God's sovereignty and human responsibility side by side. I know it's confusing and hard to understand, but this is the reality of what Scripture teaches. God is good and holy and not the author of sin. And he didn't create people just to go to hell. He created people in his image to have relationship with him. And by our own sinful disobedience, we go to hell apart from Christ. But in his grace and his mercy and his love, he chose to save some out of that. And he chose to conform them into the image of his son. And he even planned out the steps in advance he would take. These Judaizers, they were telling the people, oh, you don't just need to have faith and believe in the finished work of Christ. You need to add your own moral effort to this You need to cooperate with God and add your own work to this. But see, if we go back to Galatians chapter 4, it's contrary to the gospel. He he had said earlier in the chapter, we, we saw it two weeks ago when I preached on it, at the fullness of time, verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those, to purchase those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions and no longer be slaves. And because you are sons, God the Father has sent the spirit of his own son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. And so our adoption by the Father precedes his giving of the Holy Spirit to us and our cry of Abba and our knowing God is conditioned upon his prior knowledge of us. And the only way to know God, Jesus said, John said in John 1.18, is, is to know Christ. The only way to know God who has not been seen at any time is to know the one who has revealed him, Jesus, his son. Who came to earth, who added to himself a human nature, a human body forever. The God-man. Who became flesh and dwelt among us. Who's full of grace and truth. Who reveals the Father who is the image of the invisible God. Colossians says. The exact representation of his nature, Hebrews says. So this is why Paul is pastorally concerned. He wants Christ to be formed in them. He knows the Spirit's done a work. They've been adopted into God's family. Why would they want to go back to a system where they were slaves? To reject the gospel that Paul preached is to reject the Christ that Paul preached. That's what he's saying. It means to go back into slavery. True, they weren't going back to the Roman gods. They weren't going back to the mystery religions. They were going to Judaism. But in verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. And he's, he's I, I think this is, if there were some who were uh, saved out of the Roman imperial cult, this is a very clever rebuke. Because he said, hey, you left one calendar the Roman imperial calendar of worshiping Caesar for another calendar, the Jewish calendar of days and seasons and months and years and Sabbaths and new moons and festivals. Both of them are slavery. You're just going from one form of slavery to another, Galatians. What you need is you need Christ. 
And, and I think what he's concerned about, he says that the Judaizers influence in verse back in verse nine, I skipped over this. How can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? How can you turn back to this? He calls it weak. That means no strength, helpless, and worthless, miserable. These elementary principles of the world. This means that some of the Galatians perhaps had not been converted. Like Hebrews 6, 5, they tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, but they weren't truly saved. My prayer is that's not true of anyone here. This is why we want to see Christ formed in you. We don't want this to be true of you, that, that you've heard the gospel, you've heard the good news, you've, you've responded to it positively, but yet you think that you have to earn God's favor and you're, you, you have deluded yourself thinking that you're saved when you're not. We want to see signs of life. I mean, the, the word that's used of Christ formed in you is the, is the same. It was used also of babies in a womb being formed in shape before they're born. What does that mean? We want to see signs of life. Babies in the womb kick their mothers. When they get farther along, you see the feet and the elbows and the knees and foreheads or whatever pushing against their belly. There's signs of life and you're concerned when there's none. That's what Paul is saying. These are elementary principles that are weak and worthless. You want to be their slaves again? You want to observe days and months and seasons and years? See, this is Paul reacting to this report he had heard. And this is a problem, and I've talked about this before, this is a problem with two-tier Christianity. And there's always been a two-tier Christianity. There's always been this, this desire to be, you know, I don't want to just be a regular Christian, I want to be a super Christian. And how's it measured? In fact, this is one of the things I talk about when I teach church history over at the seminary is that it started, this two-tier Christianity started with the martyrs. When the, when the Roman emperors were killing Christians, it quickly became that the super-Christians were those who died for their faith. They were the martyrs. They were the super-Christians. And all of us regular ones were just the regular ones. And then Constantine legalized Christianity and there was no more martyrdom for the faith. And so then a movement arose called monasticism that was a sort of spiritual martyrdom. They were called green martyrs sometimes because they gave up, they became ascetic. And so if you wanted to be the super Christian, you went off either originally to live in the desert on a pillar or in a cave or in the, wherever and then later they formed communities to go live in this monastic community and live a life of asceticism and you would be this two-tier Christian, this super Christian. Then in the Middle Ages it became if you were part of the clergy, you were part of the priesthood, the religious structure of the medieval church. You were the super Christians. Then you had all the regulars who couldn't even be trusted to read the word of God. And the masses needed to be in Latin. Originally it was because Latin was the language of the empire the common language, but then it became sort of a mystical, it became a, you know, super secret way. It was like it became somehow more, yeah, magical. I mean, I, I really, it, it, you know, hocus pocus, that, that magical phrase, that came from the first line of communion in Latin. Hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. What did the guy say? I don't know. He said some hocus pocus and the bread turned into the body of Jesus and the wine turned into the blood of Jesus. Then in, the, then in the, the, the Puritan church, you have the regular Christians, and then you have the spiritual ones, were those who separated from the separatist movement, the pilgrims who eventually came to America, the persecuted ones again. I think in our culture, the two-tier Christianity we often think of is the missionaries. They're the super-Christians. They go off. They go live in North Africa or live in India, and we just still live here in Brentwood. But there's also been a two-tier form of Christianity in regard to our growth in Christ and our holiness. For example, John Wesley created his Wesleyan perfectionism model that said you're going to reach a level to where you no longer sin. You've become perfected in love and, 
And what he meant by that is that you could still do acts of sin that were unknowing sin, but you could no longer do high-handed sin against God. And, and to be fair, Wesley didn't ever think he reached that stage. He had believed he knew other people who did, but he didn't reach that stage. And the Keswick movement picked up speed in, in pulling on Wesley's teachings. Uh, many of you are familiar with it, this idea of letting go and letting God gets you to this higher level of Christianity. And Campus Crusade picked up that idea of living the spirit-filled life. Pentecostal theology with the, the second blessing of being baptized by the Holy Spirit is a sort of two-stage Christianity where you have the regular Christians and then you really sort of accelerate the Christian life when you've received the baptism. But see, this, all of this, it reminds me of what the, the Judaizers are saying here. There's all the regular Christians, but if you want to be a spiritual Christian, you need to obey the Mosaic law. And all of these two-tier Christianity models, I really think they lead to bondage. They do, because here's the deal. You either become proud that you've achieved that status, or you become incredibly depressed because if you're really honest, you'll never achieve that status. And so it either leads to pride or despair, but the gospel frees us from all of that. The gospel says, as Frank said last week, you are worse than you think. But God loves you more in Christ than you could possibly imagine. And he did the work. And you receive it by faith alone in Christ alone plus nothing. You're declared righteous in him based upon the finished work of Christ, not upon what you do. You receive it as a gift. And you need to live out that way. Live it out as a gift. And so verse 11, Paul says, I afraid I may have labored over you in vain. J.B. Phillips translates it, you make me wonder if all my efforts over you have been wasted. These questions must have haunted Paul in the long hours of the night as he thought and prayed for his beloved children in the Lord in Galatia. If the Galatians had really reverted to legalism, then Paul would have labored in vain. If they had abandoned the gospel for another gospel, Like he says in chapter 1, there is no other gospel. So to abandon this gospel is to abandon Christ. And then in verses 12 to 20, we see the heart of his pastoral concern. It's really an aside. He'd been teaching some deep theology about justification and adoption and the difference between law and gospel. And we've waded through all of that in these four chapters. And I hope you've stayed with me and my PhD hasn't ruined me and made me unable to communicate. But what we have here is a personal aside. Paul, he, he links theological content with pastoral concern. And all true theology worthy of the name, Timothy George says in his commentary, is pastoral theology. Now there was a guy, uh, Fosdick, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was a pastor, who he called what he did pastoral theology. Um, because he, he did not like expository preaching, verse-by-verse verse preaching of the Bible. So he, he developed a system where he preached to felt needs. He, he saw what his peop- he thought his people needed, what they felt they needed, and so he would preach to that. And he called it pastoral theology. Well, that kind of preaching is neither pastoral nor theology. What we have here is the heart of a pastor who says, I'm talking to you about the deep things of God. I'm talking to you about the heart of the gospel. I'm explaining to you these great doctrines of justification and adoption and the relationship between the law and the gospel. But this isn't because I want you to be a tadpole with a big head and no body. This is because the gospel's at stake. You're in spiritual jeopardy because you're gonna believe a false gospel. In fact, back in chapter two, verse 21, he says, I don't nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, Christ died for no purpose. What's at stake? The death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And if legalism is a possible way of life and spirituality and thriving and happiness, and if righteousness could come through the law, then Christ died for no reason, no purpose. How would you like to tell that to God? 
And so in verses 12 to 16, he talks about his labors among them. And in verses 17 to 20, he talks about his love for them. His labors among them and his love for them. And and this is really pretty simple. It's more of a narrative. He, He says, brothers, verse 12, I entreat you, become as I am, for I become as you are. You did me no wrong. He wants them to to become like him, to follow him in the gospel, and he reminds them, remember how I became like you? It recalls 1 Corinthians 9, where he says, I become all things to all men, so that in all ways I might win some. To the Jews I became as a Jew. To the Gentiles I became as, he says, to those outside the law I became as one outside the law, though I myself am not outside uh, the law of God, but I'm under the law of Christ. And what he means is, I became like them in their their culture and their mannerisms. I ate a ham sandwich with them, even though I'm Jewish, for the sake of winning them to Christ. But I didn't compromise or water down the gospel. I didn't change the gospel. Chapter 1, he said, there is no other gospel. I received it from the Lord Jesus directly, and I can't change it. And so he says, I feel like one of you, is what he's saying. I became like you, and you did me no wrong. Now, obviously, they had wronged him greatly by the time he wrote this. So most likely, when he says, you did me no wrong, he's talking about when I came to you the first time. Because it's right there in the context. He says, when I came to you, I became like one of you. I felt like I was a part of your family, a part of your community, and you didn't do me any wrong. In fact, it was because of a bodily ailment I came to you at the first and preached the gospel. And there's a whole lot of... uh, division over what this ailment might be. Some say malaria. He had contacted it when he was in the lower areas of Asia Minor and he had to go up to the higher areas to uh, recuperate. Others say it was epilepsy because in verse 14, uh, it was a common cultural thing to spit or to not make eye contact if someone had epilepsy. They had the evil eye. They were possessed by a demon. So people would either spit at them or they would avert, not make eye contact. Verse 15 Some have thought it was an eye infection because it says you would have gladly uh, gouged out your eyes for me. And if it was an eye infection, it means they would have gladly swapped their good eyes for his bad eyes and done an eye transplant. Others say it's the same thing as the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. The bottom line, we don't know. We just don't know. And uh, with all of his travels in the first century all over the Roman Empire... And all of everything he's even narrated that he's been through, he could have had lots of different bodily ailments over time. But, but we don't have to know. It's not that we need to know. Because what he's getting at is not the, the nature of his illness. What he's getting at is the heart of the Galatians and their hospitality. He says, you, you would have gouged out your eyes for me. You didn't scorn or despise me, even though, he says in verse 14, my condition was a trial to you. And that probably means... I didn't look real hot. I was probably pretty repulsive to you. But instead of attempting to treat me in the gospel with scorn and contempt, instead you received me as a messenger from God, he says. Which he was. And you received me as if I was the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the one whom he represented. And what does it commend? It commends their hospitality. It commends their love. It commends their gracious nature. And now he says... What happened to you? Timothy George in his commentary says, What prompted the Galatians to respond so well to this fat little bald man with a crooked nose? This this tent-making preacher of whom most people would be tempted to spit? Nothing in the character of the Galatians makes us think they were naturally disposed to receive with gracious hospitality the sort of figure Paul portrayed himself to have been. No, it was the simple preaching of the cross and the power of the Holy Spirit that softened the heart of the Galatians and brought them to a saving knowledge of the Christ Paul proclaimed. It reminds me of what Paul tells the Thessalonians. You know what kind of men we became among you in the act of our preaching. So that the word came in power with much conviction. That there was this spirit-anointed preaching that came And the Spirit sovereignly worked, and you know what kind of men we became, he tells the Thessalonians. Here he tells the Galatians, you know how you received me. Nobody would have received me in this culture. You shouldn't have received me based upon how I looked. And yet you received me. Why? Ultimately, it's the Spirit of God at work in them. And this is what he had said back in in chapter 
6, I mean, verse 6, you, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. He had talked about the spirit in chapter 3. You begun by the spirit, verse 3. The, one, the father supplies the spirit, verse 5. And you've received the promised spirit, verse 14, by faith. God uses crooked sticks. That was a favorite thing of uh, my pastor, Steve Fernandez, to say. And it wasn't original to him. He just had a way of saying it. He, he misspoke one time, and I won't, I won't say what he said. I'll, I'll tell you in private if you want to know. It was really funny. But God uses tools and crooked sticks to draw straight lines. I don't know about you, but I want to be found faithful to put my hand to the plow and not look back, to follow Christ, to live out of the gospel, have Christ be formed in me. And I know it takes the work of the Spirit of God. But the good news of the gospel is if we've believed upon Christ, we have the Spirit. And so this is not a work we do alone. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says, because it's Christ who's at work in us, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, great Baptist preacher in London in the 19th century, he wrote a, he, he taught pastors at his pastor's college for years and years, and he wrote uh, he compiled all of his lectures into uh, Lectures to My Students. I've taken a couple guys through it over the years. But at the beginning of Lectures to My Students on page 3, he writes this about the Holy Spirit in ministry. He says, To us as ministers, the Holy Spirit is absolutely essential. Without Him, our office is a mere name. We claim no priesthood over and above that which belongs to every child of God. But we are successors of those who in olden times were moved of God to declare his word, to testify against transgression, and to plead his cause. And unless we have the spirit of the prophets resting upon us, the mantle which we wear is nothing but a rough garment to deceive. We ought to be driven forth with abhorrence from the society of honest men for daring to speak in the name of the Lord if the spirit of God does not rest upon us. We believe ourselves to be spokesmen of Jesus Christ, appointed to continue his great witness upon earth. But upon him and his testimony, the Spirit of God always rested. And if it does not rest upon us, we are evidently not sent forth into the world as he was. If we have not the Spirit which Jesus promised, we cannot perform the commission which Jesus gave. It's, it's said of Spurgeon every time he walked into the, his pulpit, which was an elevated pulpit and up the stairs, every step he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And here's a man who's one of the most fruitful men in history. Thousands, tens of thousands converted and saved under his ministry. His penny sermons reached millions of people every week with the gospel. And yet he saw this need. And this is what Paul's getting at. When he came to them, his labors among them was spirit-empowered. There was a work that was done that has to testify of the reality of how great and powerful God is because it wasn't Paul. We would not be impressed by Paul. I mean, I would like to think I'd be impressed by Paul. In my mind, he's been elevated so high as one of the apostles and, and such a wonderful man of God and one of my heroes of the faith, but yet if I met him in person, I probably wouldn't be impressed. That was the accusation. His letters are weighty, but in person, he's nothing. And so he says to them, what become of your happiness, verse 15? What's become of your blessedness? You remember when I was with you how full of joy and happy you were? You remember your conversion? What happened? He says, I'll tell you what happened. That's the next verse, 17, he says. Oh, he says, have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? In verse 16, they were treating him as an enemy, but he had spoke the truth and love to them. And in verse 17, he tells them what the answer is. What changed the attitude of the Galatians is the presence of these agitators. Verse 17, he says, they, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. He doesn't even name them. He just says they, those guys, those ones. And this verse can be a little bit difficult to understand. Paul is simply saying the agitators want to exclude the Gentile Christians from the people of God unless and until they prepare to become circumcised and follow the Mosaic law. Those people, Paul says to the Galatians, they want you to follow them exclusively and be members of their school and no other. It's like all those B-rate kung fu movies I watched with my dad as a kid. 
There was always the bully dojo, like the Cobra Kai, you know, and Karate Kid. And they would steal students from other schools by threats and convincing they were superior. This is what Paul said. These Judaizers, they want you to be disciples of their school and no other. And they're threatening you that you're going to go to hell and you're not, you're going to, you're going to, you're not even going to fully be saved. Or, or maybe not that extreme. Maybe it was you're not going to live the fullness of the Christian life until you get circumcised and follow Jewish law. And then he says this in verse 18. He says, it is good, it's always good, to be made much of for a good purpose. It's kind of a fascinating thought there. He says, when, when someone makes much of you, and the idea behind the word is they're courting you, they want something from you, and they're making much of you, if they have honorable intentions, I suppose like Mr. Miyagi in Karate Kid, if we're keeping that illustration, like the Galatians were courted by Paul, Paul made much of them and courted them with the gospel. It was with honorable intentions, and it was good. He said, but these Judaizers, they come, and they make much of you for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. So un- this idea that they're going to shut you out until you make much of them. Until you come into line with their way of thinking. They had dishonorable intentions. And he says, verse 19, my little children, I am in anguish about this. I'm losing sleep over this. I want to see Christ formed in you. I want to see Christ shaped in you. First time when he preached the gospel to them, they came to faith in Christ. When Paul had said earlier, become like me, he's saying, die like I've died. Live by faith in the Son of God so that in his life, you live a life that his life shapes and forms your life. So that you're formed into Christ. And then he concludes and he says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone for I'm perplexed about you. He says, you know, how we know how this is, especially in this age with text messaging and emails and social media. Sometimes what people write is not what we misunderstand what they mean because we don't see their facial expressions. We don't see them face to face. The tone of voice, the look on the face convey nearly as much as the words that are said. And he wants to be with them to correct them firmly but gently and to demonstrate he really loves them. And he's not out to get them. And other translators, I think, have caught the tone of his frustration saying, I honestly don't know how to deal with you, or I'm at my wit's end about you. You see, Paul was not interested in developing a cult of personality around himself. He didn't want a band of Pauline groupies whose primary loyalty was to him rather than the gospel. His overriding interest is that Christ would be formed in his dear little children. This is what he wanted. This is what our elders, what we desire of you is that Christ is formed in you. Calvin said, if ministers wish to do any good, let them labor to form Christ, not to form themselves in their hearers. This is at the heart of all good preaching. We want Christ to be formed in you. I definitely don't want little duplicates of myself to be formed in you. Amen. Preach it, brother. John Stott, in his uh, commentary, Message of Galatians, he says, this is, this is quite good. The church needs people who, in listening to their pastor, listen for the message of Christ, and pastors who, in laboring among the people, look for the image of Christ. That's what, that's what I would want you to demand of me, is that when I preach, you hear the message of Christ. You hear this message that Paul preached, this gospel, that you're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, because of his finished work at the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, as your substitute, as the one who took your penalty in your place, and that by faith you're united to him, and you're given new life, and you're born again, and you're adopted into a new family, and you're given a new status. You're now sons of God, children of God, and you have a new hope and a new inheritance in Christ. I think a question that sticks out to me is, and Paul didn't answer it here, not, not directly, is how is Christ formed in you? How does this happen? I mean, Ryan, it's easy for you to preach this, but how does it happen? Well, just look at this. Link 419, Galatians 419, connected to Galatians 4.6. 419 says Christ should be formed in us. 
Verse 6 says, the way Christ comes to us is by his spirit. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now, from 4-6, go back to chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, the one who supplies the spirit, who's that? The father. The father who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you does so not by works of the law, but by hearing with faith. In other words, the ongoing supply by the Father of the Spirit of Christ and Christ being formed in you, this miraculous work happens through faith. So the answer to the question, how is Christ formed in your life, is by faith. We live out of who we are in Christ. We live by faith in the gospel. By faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself up for us, verse 20 of chapter 2. And I know that seems too easy, too simple. Give me another law. Give me rules to follow. Tell me what to do this week, and I can do that. I love checklists. I know others who hate checklists. They'd rather eat their checklist. But I love them. Give me a checklist, and I will check that bad boy off. And then when I'm done, I feel so good and accomplished. But the Christian life isn't that way. Because it's relation with a person. We're in relationship and communion and intimately know the living God of the universe who so loved us, he gave his son for us and has poured out his spirit into our hearts. And so we live by faith in communion with him. And so we put to death sin. We say no to sin and we say yes to Christ. And the way we do that is we do it by expelling the love of sin with a higher affection for Christ. It's relation. That's why we come to the table. To remember him, his finished work. And we live and we strive for joy and happiness. that, That may sound contradictory, but it's not. God's glory and our joy are not at odds. John Piper, he has poetically said it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. We glorify God by enjoying him forever. And if we fall into this legalism, we no longer have joy because we're no longer finding our glory in God. We're finding glory in man-made rules. Colossians 2 says, has the appearance of wisdom, but is of no value against fleshly indulgence. So my heart this morning is that Christ would be formed in you, that you would strive for this, strive for the gospel, fight for joy, Glorify God. Draw near to God. He's drawn near to you in his son. Father, thank you for your word. As we come to the table now, would you just um, give us a wonderful time of fellowship and communion around this remembrance of what you've done in Christ and how by the spirit you've opened our eyes and you're conforming us into the image of your son by your spirit from one degree of glory to another as we heard. In Jesus' name. To this message or learn more, please visit calvarytruth.org.